Given that the world cannot see Jesus physically, what does it look like practically for the church to make Christ known? In what ways do you think the church in our culture is giving the world a false picture of Christ? How can the church address this? And what does this mean for you personally? Welcome to Radical with David Platt. As always, you can find thousands more resources at our website, Radical.net. In today's sermon from David Platt, we learn that the church is not a building or merely an earthly institution. It's a community of faith united under Christ, where he is the head and we are the body. So here's David with the sermon titled, The Church's Identity, Authority, and Purpose from Ephesians chapter 1. If you got your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I really like that pony line at the end. <laughs> what I want us to do over the next two weeks is, is to take a look at what I want to call a radical redefinition of the church. As a part of this whole series of radical restoration, becoming the church that God has intended for us to be, I want us to look at what the church is what it means to be a part of the church, what it means to be a member of the church. I think these are some areas that we're going to look at in Scripture that are sorely needed in our church culture today. What is the church and what's the church all about? And so we're going to do that this morning and next week. This morning will be a little more focused on the universal church as a whole, and the next week we'll dive even more specifically into a definition of the local church. But what is the church? Why is the church important? That's what I want us to dive into. And I want us to use Ephesians chapter 1 as a text to 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 begin our study of what the church is about. Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to start reading at verse 22. We're going to focus this morning on verses 22 and 23. This is Paul, and he's writing to a specific local church, specific local believers in a certain area. And he says this, verse 22 says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And I want us to dive right in this morning, and I want to show you a few reminders from the church that I believe spring from this text. Reminders that maybe we know in our heads, but somewhere along the way, with our caked-on culture, we have missed out on completely, functionally, in the church today. Three reminders for the church. Number one, as the church, we comprise the body of Christ. As the church, we comprise the body of Christ. Now, obviously, right here in the end of verse 22, it says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. So that's how Paul begins to describe the church in the book of Ephesians. What I want you to do is I want you to see how this is a theme that comes up over and over and over again in this book that he has written. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. If you got a pencil or pen, you can circle this in your Bible. I want to show you each of the times when Paul mentions The fact that the church is the body of Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. We'll kind of start at the end of verse 15 just to to get the context. It says, His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. So there it is, a picture of the body. Now look over in chapter 3, verse 6. Paul speaking to them, he says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one, here it is, circle it, body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Now look in chapter 4. Look in verse 4. 
You can circle it here. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are one body. Chapter 4, go on down to verse 11, or verse 12, I'm sorry. God has given gifts to the church and, and apostles, preachers, pastors, teachers, evangelists to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Down in verse 15 or 16, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, love as each part does its work. Verse 25, come to the very end. It says we are all members of one body. Chapter 5, let me show you two times there. Verse 23 says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Verse 30, we are all members of his body. Over and over again, Paul's making a pretty clear point here. The church is the body of Christ. In fact, if you take a right and go two books over to the right, you come to the book of Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see how Paul continues this theme. There are a lot of parallels. I wish we had time this morning to go into all the parallels between Colossians and Ephesians when it's talking about the church. Maybe we can do that sometime. But, but I want you to look in verse 18. This is talking about Christ and his supremacy in all creation. It says, he is the head of the body, the church. There it is again. He's picking up on that theme. Look down in verse 24. Paul says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his what? This is the audience participation part of our program. For the sake of his body, the church. Okay, over and over again, we see Paul saying the church is the body of Christ. That's what the New Testament teaches. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, he says it to them. We are all members of one body. So, so the church, the, the New Testament is teaching us pretty clearly the church is the body of Christ. But somewhere along the way, we miss that. We completely miss that. In fact, the way, the way we grow up in our society, we look at the church as one of two things. We either see the church predominantly as either, either a building or a business or an institution. Those are the two ways we look at the church most often. Either the church is a building or it's a business or institution. Now, I want, you to, I want you to think about those two options with me for a second this morning. If the church is a building, and that's how we often look at it, I'm going to go to church this morning. Where do you go to church? That's the question we ask people in a church culture like Birmingham. Where do you go to church? It's a place that you go. We worship at the church. It's about going to a certain place to do church. But if the church is a building, then that means we are consumers. If the church is a building, then we are consumers. Church is a place that we go to, that we are consumers. And the church becomes a, a vendor of religious goods and services. And we go and we pick out what works best for us. Just like we saw in that video, but maybe even in more smaller, practical ways. We treat the church like a marketplace of ideas, like a supermarket. We're picking out the best tomatoes that we can find in the supermarket. We're trying to find the biggest bargain we can for our money. And we go and we start looking for churches and we find, well, which is going to work best for me? What product is going to be best for me and my family? And so we shop around for churches. That's how we look at church. When we're looking for a church, we're consumers. Or maybe even a step deeper, not, not like we're going to the supermarket, almost like we're sitting as a judge on American Idol. We're sitting back looking for what fits our preferences best when we look at the church. And we sit there and sometimes we walk away and we say, wow, you were on fire. That was awesome. That sermon, the music, it was incredible. Other times we walk away, what do we say? Well, I didn't. Didn't like the song selection very much this time. 
You know, it wasn't the preacher's A game. It just wasn't, you didn't really bring it all to the table. You could have done a little better. Maybe next week, try to come back. We'll let you come back. You come back next week, we'll try to do better. We look at the church like judges on American Isle, trying to figure out what our best preferences are. Or maybe we just, we create this term called attenders, where I'll come and I'll sit, but I'm not going to make really any commitment to the church. I don't know if it's because we're afraid or maybe... We think, well, I don't want to risk it. What if something happens to the church that I don't like? Then I'd have, to, I'd have to pull out. And so we look at the church as consumers. If the church is a building, then we are consumers. If the church is a business or an institution, then we are competitors. If the church is an institution, then we're competitors. And we talk about all the time how the, the staff operates the church like a business. And there's some guys somewhere in some dark room that are leading the church. And when we give our money, we give our money to the business. That's what the church is about. And when we talk about the church, we talk, well, our church does this or our church does that. And we begin to have this competition going on with hundreds of churches in Birmingham. Our church does this. Does your church do that? Well, if my church doesn't do this, I'm going to go start a new one. And we just go start new churches so, so we can have, have a church that, that meets what we want and what competes best with the people around us. But it's not just outside the church. This creeps inside the church. And inside the church, you have a picture of people that are jockeying for position, trying to gain control, trying to, trying to de- decipher how we're going to do this best and trying to control what goes on in the church. And we become competitors inside the church. And we get so engrossed in how we operate and the programs we provide that somewhere along the way, we miss completely out on focusing on the lost people around us, much less the millions of people who are dar- starving in Sudan or the billions of people who haven't heard the name of Jesus. Those are a side note because we're competing with each other to have the best church. The church is a building and we are consumers. The church is a business or an institution then we are competitors. Those are the two ways we most often grow up thinking of the church. And I want you to see this morning, they are blatantly wrong. They are biblically deficient. The church is not a building and the church is not a business or an institution. But if the church is a body, then that means we are not consumers. We are not competitors. We are a community of faith. And that's the picture that Paul is giving us here. The church is not about us being consumers or competitors. That's not what the picture of the New Testament church is about. We are a community of faith that comes together to worship Christ, to obey his mission together. And that's what they had missed out on. If you come back to Ephesians chapter one, they had missed out on completely there in the church. You see, there had become a lot of division between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. The Jews were the chosen people of God in the Old Testament. They were the people that God had poured out his grace and his love on. Now the Gentiles were coming into the faith, and a lot of the Gentiles kind of felt left out, and there was a real division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this whole consumerism or competition had creeped into the church. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to look at verse 3 and how Paul starts this letter. I want to show you something that gives us an insight into what it means to be the community of faith in the church. I want you to look at how he starts by praising God and talking about the blessings we have in Christ. I just want you to hear this. Let this word really just speak to your heart. Listen to what it says. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Isn't this rich? He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Now, in that passage we see God has, he has adopted us as sons and daughters. He has chosen us. He has predestined us. Now at this point, we start to debate immediately. What do you mean predestined, preacher? Did he predestine us? What does that mean? Does that mean he chose me and not other people? We start this debate about predestination. Am I elected? Who's elected? We have this debate about who's chosen, who's in, who's out. That's not the point of what Paul is saying here. He's talking about the blessings we have in Christ. But I want you to notice a theme that runs throughout these verses we just read. I want you to look in verse 3. It says, God has blessed who in the heavenly realms? It says he has blessed us. Verse 4, he chose who? Us. In verse 5, he predestined us. In verse 6, he has freely given us in the one he loves. In verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of the gospel. In verse 11, in him we were also chosen. Verse 12, in order that we might be for the praise of his glory. Now I want you to notice something very interesting in verse 13. And you. Did you notice that? Circle the word you there in your Bible. It's different. He changes the entire, entire way he's referring to them. For 12 verses, he talks about how we have been blessed by God, how we've been chosen to receive his grace, how we have been recipients of his mercy. Then in verse 13, he says, and you also were included in him. Now, remember the context? Jews and Gentiles, right? right? Who do you think the we is referring to in the first 12 verses? Paul, a Jewish man, talking about how the people of God, the people of Israel had been chosen by God, predestined by God, anointed by him, adopted by him, blessed by him in abundant ways. And then Paul gets to the end and he says, and guess what, guys? Now you're in on it too. You're a part of this thing. And what you see is in the middle of division, Paul coming on the scene and he says, together we are one body under Christ. Well, thanks for the history lesson, David. What does that have to do with us today? I can't help but to think that even in this room on this morning, there are some of you who are feeling like Gentiles in a sense, almost like second-class Christians because of what's happened in your past, because you, you have divorce in your past or you have some pretty dark sins in your past. You haven't been a Christian as long as everybody else has and You've got some problems that are going on in your life right now that nobody else in this room really has. And you're struggling with some things that nobody, everybody else in this room is too good to struggle with. And you feel like you're a second-class Christian. And I want you to know this morning, based on the authority of the Word of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, you are not second-class. You are a part of the family, the body of Christ. All of us in this room are part of a community of faith. Now, that changes our perspective on what the church is about not a building or a business and an institution, but, but a body of believers, a community of faith coming together. What I'd like to do is I'd like to see the day when our terminology at the church at Brook Hills is completely changed and we stop talking about going to church and we stop talking about the goods and services we had met that day. 
When we stop talking like the church is a building or a business, I'm praying for the day when we start talking like the church is a body. You say, well, Dave, haven't you been around long enough here in the South? That just won't happen. This is the way we talk about church. God, help us to change the way we talk about church to come in line with his word. We comprise the body of Christ. Let's act like it. Not only do we comprise the body of Christ, but we possess the authority of Christ. Now here's where it really gets good. I want you to, I want you to look at the context of this, this passage that we just read. We've read verses 22 and 23. But if you look back up in verse 15, Paul is praying a prayer for the believers there. And he says, I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And in verse 17, he tells us what he's praying for. He gives us a list of things. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now listen to this that you would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he begins to talk about that power. And from verse 19 all the way down to verse 23, he describes the power of Christ. And I want you to catch it. It says that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And then we come to the verses we talked about. God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So what we see is Paul showing us a few truths. First of all, Christ has all power. He communicates to that, that to them. He says, you've got to see that your Savior has all power. And he describes this throughout this passage. If you look at the, the numerous times, even the word all is mentioned. In verse 21, it says, he is far above all rule and authority. There's the first time we see it. And then look down in verse 22. God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, and then it says the, the church is the body, the fullness of him who fulfills all things in all ways. Literally means everything in every way. Christ has all power. And he gives us a picture. He kind of goes down a list. He said, look at his resurrection. He conquered death. Look at his ascension into heaven, his exaltation, his position at the right hand of the God of the universe, his authority, his dominion, his title over every other ruler. In all of history, God has placed all things under his feet. I want you to think about that with me this morning. For Christ to have all things under his feet, all the rulers of the world under the feet of Christ. There's not one ruler on the face of this earth today that is not under the authority of Jesus Christ, under the power of Jesus Christ, under his feet. Not one current event that we see on CNN is not under the authority of Christ. The violence we're seeing going on in the West Bank right now as we pray for believers there, it's all under the feet of Christ. This last week we were in Indonesia, closest I have ever been to a volcano that was about to erupt. And you could see, right, when we walked outside the seminary where we were, and you could see right there just a few miles away in the landscape, this massive volcano, and you could see the, the smoke coming out of the top, and you could see where the lava had already flowed down parts of the mountain and taken out the trees. And it was good news to know that that volcano was under the feet of Christ. Nothing was going to happen to that volcano apart from the authority of Jesus Christ. He's got all rule and all authority over everything. 
So we see that Christ has all power. But look at this next truth. The church has the fullness of Christ. That's how the church is described in verse 22 and 23. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him, basically means, literally, in the original language of the New Testament, means it's filled by him, it's filled with him, and that word literally means to fill completely. So the church has all that Christ has. The fullness of Christ dwells in the church. Now you put those two truths together and look what you get. Christ has all power. The fullness of Christ is in the church. Don't miss this. That means that all the authority of Christ and all the universe belongs to who? It belongs to the church. Think about that. If Christ has it all and we have all of Christ, then we've got it all. All authority, all power, all dominion, everything that is Christ belongs to us. He shares it with us. Think about it. We share in his crucifixion over and over again. We died with Christ, right? We share in his resurrection. We don't have to worry about death because one day when we die, we're going to spend eternity with Christ in heaven. We share in his resurrection. We share in his exaltation. What do you mean? We're going to be exalted? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 6. It says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Isn't that an incredible truth? There's a picture. Jesus, seated above all the heavenly realms, said, we're right there next to him with a smile on our faces. We have his, we share his resurrection, his his crucifixion, his ascension, his exaltation, and his authority. Great commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples because you have my authority in you. That's the picture he's given us of the church. What an incredible truth here. I want you to look over at 1 Corinthians. I, you got to see this. 1 Corinthians, look at chapter, chapter 3. I want you to look at verse 21. This was another time when the, when, the, when the church was divisive and they were going at each other's throats about different things. Happens in the church sometimes. I want you to look at what he says. They were having all these debates about different people in the church, about who the greater teacher was. I want you to look at what verse 21 says. He comes to the end. He's talking about don't deceive yourselves. Stop your bickering. And he says, so then, no more boasting about men. And then he says these words, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all of them are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. And he's reminding them, you possess the authority of Christ. Everything that is his belongs to you. I remember when I uh, was, was getting married to Heather, December 18th, 1999. I, she's a year older than me, married an older woman. So uh, she, she had finished up college. I actually was finishing up. And the semester before we got married, I was finishing up. And so that meant I was a college student living on college income, eating a lot of ramen noodles and just kind of making my way, just working as hard as I could at school. And that, therefore, I didn't have an income coming from anywhere else. As a result... Like many college students, no cash flow whatsoever, all right? No, no real income as a result of the ramen noodles. That's the picture for me as I'm preparing to get married. Heather, on the other hand, had graduated and she'd gotten a job teaching. That meant she had cash flow. She had an income coming in. She had money in her bank account. So on December 18th, 1999, we stand at the altar and we join our lives together. Now on that day, I received some incredible things. Most importantly, a beautiful wife. But you know what else I received on that day? Cash flow. (laughs) 
One minute, no income. The next minute, income. One minute, nothing in my bank account. The next minute, I got money in the account. Simply by uniting my life with her, everything that was hers became mine. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a much greater truth for you this morning based on God's word. When you unite your life with Christ, everything that is his, his holiness, his redemption, his mercy, it's all yours. His power, his authority, his grace, it all belongs to you. We possess the authority of Christ. Are we living like it, though? In our struggles with sin, does it look like we have the authority of Christ? Whether individually or corporately in the church, the way we struggle with gossip or with bitterness, does it look like we have the authority of Christ? With our power and influence in the culture, does it look like do people say, wow, the church has the authority of the one who has all dominion and all power? All authority belongs to Christ, belongs to us. When we were in Indonesia, these guys, just amazing folks. This seminary, I told, I've told you about the seminary, planting churches throughout the country, leading people to Christ. I remember one time, and this was last October when I was in Indonesia, it reminded me of it this last week. I was talking with a guy, and kind of a short, stocky guy, and uh, he was telling me his story, kind of his testimony. He said, Dave, when I, before I was a Christian, I, I used to be a fighter. He said, I knew ninja and jujitsu and a few other things. He said, I could take guys out. Like, I believe you. And he says, but when I became a Christian, God changed my heart. He said, I remember one day I was in a village where there were hardly any Christians, if there were any at all. And I was sharing the gospel with somebody in this hut, in their little house. And about that time, the witch doctor from the village, which is very prevalent in a lot of cultures like that, comes to the house and basically called the guy out. He said he wanted to fight me. The witch doctor knew what I was doing there. He wanted to, he wanted to have it out with me. So he said, I started walking out of the house. I was about ready to take this guy down. He said, but it was when I stepped over the threshold of the house, he said, the Lord told me, you don't fight, I'll fight for you. So here's what he did. He pulled up a chair. He sat down and he looked at the guy and he said, my God will fight for me. In the next minute or two, this guy, the, the witch doctor began to choke and he said, David, I couldn't believe my eyes. He fell over dead right in front of me. Now, I don't want you to be too freaked out, okay? <laughs> well, you can be freaked out. I was freaked out, all right? <laughs> and he said, all the village came to see what had happened. And I told him the story, and all the village said, we want to believe in this God. The whole village came to Christ. Now, now I'm not saying this morning the best thing for us to do from Brook Hills is to go out into Birmingham, pull up some chairs, and start pronouncing things on people. That's not the point. Please, don't, don't try that. And, and just, just, just don't, okay? But I am saying this. There's a church around the world, and there was a church 2,000 years ago that believed they had the power of Christ. And as a result, they saw thousands saved when they preached. When was, as a result, they saw demons flee when they proclaimed the gospel. And they saw people healed. They saw people's lives changed. They saw nations reached. They saw churches started. And I believe that power is available to the church today. And I want us to be a church that lives like it. What I had to realize, and I realized it again this last week in Indonesia, these people, a guy like that, he's surprised 
if God doesn't show up and do something supernatural, and I look at my life and I look at the way we do church, and we're shocked if God even begins to do something supernatural. And I pray that that changes. God, bring us in touch with the supernatural. Your power and your authority, not so that people will say, wow, what a, what a, what a, Amazing things are happening over there. But so the people come to Christ, so the gospels advance, so the nations know the goodness of God. That's what he wants to do. And he's given us his authority to do it. Let's start living like we've got this authority. We possess the authority of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. All right, we comprise the body of Christ. We possess the authority of Christ. Isn't this a good text? The word's good, isn't it? I want you to come to the last part. I want you to see this reminder. We not only comprise the body of Christ and possess the authority of Christ, but we display the glory of Christ. We display his glory. Now we know, we know before even, I show you this in Ephesians chapter one, we know that the mission of God is to make his glory and his salvation and his ways known in all nations. When he sent Christ, his salvation, we know that the mission of God is to make the glory of Christ known in all nations. But what we see in this passage, we've already seen Christ is exalted, is seated at the right hand of the Father. So if, if God wants to make the glory of Christ known throughout the world, but Christ is seated at his right hand, then how is he going to make the glory of Christ known? I'm glad you asked. Because the answer is the church. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In the original language of the New Testament, don't miss this. It literally means we are the means by which Christ fills everything in every way. If God's going to show his glory to the world, the glory of his son, then he's going to do it through his church. Christ is continually revealing himself to the nations through his fullness in the church. That's what this passage is teaching us here. Christ is showing his glory throughout Birmingham and all nations, and he's doing it through his church. That's how, that's how this whole thing is set up, so that we would display the glory of Christ. God is going to put the body of his son on display to, to show the glory of his son. Don't miss that. And remember, that, that's why. That's why the church cannot be a building. Walls don't reflect the glory of Christ. That's why the church cannot be a business or an institution. Because having a business or institution is not what's going to show a lost and dying world the glory and greatness and majesty of Christ. That's why we have to get a hold on the fact that the church is the body of Christ. Because that's how God is going to show his glory. Not through walls, not through a business, but through lives that are changed by the grace of Christ. Through a community that loves each other and supports each other encourages each other, builds each other up. That's how he's going to show his glory. I want you to look up here on the screen, and I want you to begin to see a picture that we're going to unfold over the next few weeks. And I want you to see a picture of the world. And we know that God has blessed us so that he might make his salvation known in all nations. And we know that at the center, Christ has all authority and all power and all dominion. I want you to see Christ in the center of all of this. And now I want you to think, how is Christ going to show his glory to the world? And on this picture, I want to show you that it's going to happen through one means, and that means is the church. This is what the church is about. We take the glory of Christ, the authority and the dominion of Christ, and we spread it out to the nations. And we put him on display in Birmingham and throughout the world. That is the purpose of the church, to display the glory of Christ. 
Now, I, I know what some of you have been thinking, and you've been thinking ever since we started this morning, maybe even if you've been sitting around in the series, you've been thinking, David, why should I care? Why, why should I care about the church? Why should I care about restoring the church? Why should I care about how leadership in the church looks like? How, why should I care how the church is governed? Why should I even be a member of the church? And here's the answer. Because you have seen his glory. And you've been radically saved from your sins. And you have received the infinite hope of eternal life in heaven. And because that glory changes your heart and it propels you to say, I want to make that glory known in all nations, among all peoples. You say, well, I can't, can I do that on my own? I can just come and receive encouragement here and then go out and do that on my own. We are so individualistic. We think of our faith so much as individuals and it's not biblical to do that. Sure, every facet of our lives is supposed to like reflect the glory of God. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart so that, so that you can make the praise of God known. Making the glory of God known individually. But what this passage is telling us is that the fullness of Christ dwells in the church and God is going to use the church to make the fullness of his glory known to the nations. And so that means if we really want to make the glory of Christ known, then we need to give ourselves to the church and make the church exactly what it needs to be so that the glory of Christ will be proclaimed through us. This is more important than where your membership is written down on or how many times you get to vote during the year as a church member. This is about the glory of Christ and the community around us. And as a result, this is an infinitely important thing for us to consider. That's why we must care about it. God is saying to the world, look at my church and you will see my son. Now that's huge. Look at the church and you'll see my son. God has wrapped up a lot in us. And sometimes I wonder why. Sometimes I wonder why we are the means by which God is going to make his glory known because we fall flat on our face so many times because we miss the boat. I have to be reminded over and over and over again, just like we see the people in the Old Testament, we fall into the same traps they do. But don't miss it. That's the beauty of this picture. Because God in his grace takes the people that don't deserve it and takes the people that are unworthy and takes the people that just can't get it on their own and he shows his, his strength in our weakness and he shows his glory and his grace in our difficulties and as a result of that, he shows the world his glory. Look at the church and you will see my son. What this means is God is going to show his glory in Birmingham and he's going to do it through the church and not through our renegade Lone Ranger faith that leads us in, from church to church to church to church, just kind of going from place to place, never giving ourselves committed to the church itself. That's not how he's going to show his glory. He's going to show his glory through a community of faith that possesses the authority of Christ and is surrendered to one purpose, displaying the glory of Christ. And that's, that's what he's going to do around the world. It's what he wants to use us to do around the world. When we put the church on display, then people see the glory of Christ. In Indonesia, they, many of you know, the city where we were in uh, had an earthquake about a month ago. 7,000 people have died. Over 50,000 still in the hospital. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of homes completely destroyed. Wiped out down to rubble. And these Christians, 
Now, Indonesia, the largest Muslim-dominated nation in the world, they're going into these communities, and right after the hurricane, they saturated those communities. They started caring for the people who had died, for the Muslims who had died, started wrapping their bodies and taking care of them. You know what's happened as a result? If you've been to a a Muslim-dominated country, you know that over the loudspeakers, you hear prayers all throughout the day. They pray their Muslim prayers over the loudspeakers, so you just constantly are listening to these prayers in the background. They took the loudspeakers and they announced to the Muslims in those areas, the Christians are no longer our enemies. They're our friends. They're helping us out. Not only that, but in some of these areas, there's some more militant Muslims than other areas, more terrorist-prone Muslims. And they came in when the Christians were helping out. The terrorist-prone, the more militant Muslims came in and started trying to kick the Christians out. Said, you don't need to be here. We're going to take care of this. The other Muslims rose up and kicked the militant Muslims out and said, the Christians need to be here. They're helping us out. They even have invited, one of the guys we were working with, Victor, they even invited him to speak in a mosque and to tell why Christians act the way they do based on their faith. In a mosque, preaching in a mosque. How does that happen? It happens when the church of Christ rises up and takes action and displays the glory of Christ. And I believe it's what God wants to do throughout this community. If we would show that kind of sacrificial love and show Birmingham what a church looks like, what a community of faith, not a building or a business, but what a church looks like, the glory of Christ would be displayed through us. That's why we've got to care about this because here's the deal. If we are consumers and we come and we pick and choose what we want from church and we complain about this or that that doesn't go our way and we complain about how we didn't like the songs and we go out in the community and we do that, people don't see his glory. And if we operate the church like a business and the staff runs the church and a few people try to control the church or any kind of picture like that, we're competing with each other or we just kind of kind of talk about how we jockey for position or we try to, try to gain leadership through this or that. that. That doesn't show the glory of Christ. But when we throw consumerism and competition aside and say we're a community of faith, we don't have, we don't have a, a mentality that says it's all about us. We don't have a mentality that says we're going to fight for position. We have a mentality that says we want the glory of Christ to be displayed and things start to happen. And that's the picture we're getting here. I pray that God makes that a picture of reality at the church at Brook Hills. We display the glory of Christ, and that's why it's infinitely important that we care about the church. So, what now? How do we display the glory of Christ in Birmingham and in all nations to the world? And there's, there's tons of ways that you can answer those questions. And I want to encourage you in your life to think through how you can answer that question best in the church. And I want to make a special call to those of you who are in there this morning who, for whatever reason, have not come to the point where you have committed your life to the church and to a local manifestation of believers. We're going to talk more about how that looks next week. But it's been kind of a sideline thing for you, a come and go kind of thing. I want you to see how infinitely important the glory of Christ is. In our efforts to bring people into the church, I'm convinced we've begun to devalue what it means to be a member of the church of God. And not that I think it's important for us to make things hard for people to come into the church or make things difficult or make you go through some legalistic process. That's not, that's not what I want us to do. But at the same time, 
The glory of Christ in our community is too important for us to take what it means to be a member of a church lightly. And so I want to invite you this morning, if you've been kind of on the sidelines, to get in on this mission. And whether it's here at the church as it manifests itself through Brook Hills or another local church, get in the game and display the glory of Christ with a community of faith. And second, I want to give, I want to give us an opportunity to display the glory of Christ to the world. I want to show you some pictures up here on the screen. They're, first of all, the rubble that I mentioned just a second ago. If you can imagine a village in Indonesia that is just completely rocks. It's not what that village looked like a month ago. But villages like this were 100% destroyed by an earthquake. Every house, every family. Complete rocks and rubble everywhere as you walk through it. I'll show you the next picture of a church in that community right there. They have rebuilt the structure in a couple of days. In the middle of that screen, you see in a blue shirt, the pastor. This is a pastor we were worshiping with a week ago today. This is a pastor that led in musical worship. And he led songs about joy in Christ. This is a pastor whose house came tumbling down around him and his family. How he hid his, he told the story of how he hid his kids in a, in a cupboard, a place that was kind of a safe place. As the, the house literally came crashing down around them. And he's leading in worship about the joy of Christ. It's one of two churches. There's another one in the next picture that you see that, that has been erected just amidst all the rubble. This is where believers are gathering to worship, proclaim the glory of Christ. Now, I mentioned hundreds and hundreds of thousands of homes had been destroyed. I want you to look at this next, next slide. You're going to see a picture of a, a makeshift temporary house that they are building throughout these communities. These churches are going out and they're building these homes for, for Muslims and for others throughout these communities so they have a place to live while they restore their communities. And we asked them, we said, how much, how much does it cost to build one of those, those houses? Oh, about $350, $400. Most $400 to build one of those houses. And we had taken some, some funds over there and some people had given and we gave to begin rebuilding that pastor's house and those two churches that you just saw. But I wanted to show you this picture this morning. And I wanted to say to you this morning that we have an opportunity to display the glory of Christ in the world by building some houses for some Indonesians. For $400, you can erect a house for somebody to live in. And I'm not going to invite, I know that everybody is not able to give that kind of money. And I, wanted, I don't want to invite you in any way this morning that you would give your tithe to this, because this is something that would be over and above. But when I was there in October, I had just, my house had just gone underwater as a result of Hurricane Katrina. And the church there in Indonesia, for the church where I was serving at the time in New Orleans and the seminary where I was teaching, raised about four or five million rupees. I came back. I said, man, I raised millions. Unfortunately, that was only about four or $500, but that was a huge gift from a church that had very little. And as we prayed coming back, I wanted to extend to you an opportunity for you this morning to say, I'm going to build a house in Indonesia and to spread the glory of Christ to the world through that. And so in just a second, we're going to go into a time of prayer and reflection where you have opportunity at the bottom of that page there to write down anything that you need to do in your life to display the glory of Christ in Birmingham to the world. I'm going to invite some church leaders to be available here at the front. If you, you don't have to come forward here at Brook Hills, walk down the aisle in order to become a member, but this morning I'd like to give you that opportunity.
if this morning right now you want to nail down and say, I want to be a member of this church, that you could come to one of these church leaders and say, I'm ready to join with this community of faith. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And then at the same time, I want to open up this altar. And if the Lord leads you, the Lord leads you by his grace to give. If you can give to, to build a house or two or whatever it may be, then you take advantage of this opportunity. And you can come and just put that up here on this altar. Just lay it here and maybe pray for the family that will live in there to see the glory of Christ. And you can make your way back to your seat. If you don't have that much, but you'd like to give something toward making a house built in Indonesia, then you don't have to put 350 or $400 up here. You could do something different. But I do want us to have a time normally at the end of the beginning of every month. I know the church here does a family assistance fund. We're going to do a family assistance fund this morning for homes to be built throughout communities in Indonesia for the glory of Christ. Will you pray with me? God, I pray this morning that you would make us at the church at Brook Hills a manifestation of your glory. Lord, we thank you for our position as your body. We thank you for uniting our lives with yours. And we thank you for the power and the authority you have given us in that. And God, we pray this morning that you would make us a church with power. Make us a church with authority. Make us a church that proclaims the glory of Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that as a result of that, your glory would be made known throughout Birmingham and all nations. God, I pray that this morning you would raise up men and women who would give themselves to the church. Lord, we pray that you do whatever it takes in our lives to make us the church that you have designed us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. If all followers of Christ are part of the universal church, then why do they need to be committed to a local church? Next week, David Platt continues the Radical Restoration series with a sermon titled, The Biblical Marks of a Local Church. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. We'll see you next time.